Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Co-op. This morning, we have the absolute pleasure to have two lovely ladies on with us this morning, Chris Clamp and Terry Lewis. Good morning, ladies. Good morning. Good morning. And Chris, where are you at? What part of the world are you in? So I'm sitting at home in my house in Boston, in the neighborhood of Brighton. I didn't grow up here, but I came here for graduate school, and I stayed. And Terry, where are you? I am in a suburb of Detroit, Michigan, which is the city I grew up in and the one I returned to when I retired. And have you really retired? Well, <laughs> I say I'm retired. Okay. <laughs> but really, no. Well, I've retired the world, the word retired. Okay. <laughs> and Chris, you were one of the writers, developers, producers of this book called Humanity at Work and Life. At Work and Life. So wh what do you call, Michael Peck was on last week, we were talking about the book. It was so exciting, we decided to bring you guys back on again to talk about it. So what is your role, what is your, your Mike's role with the book? So Michael and I started into this with the idea that we would do a book that gave an updated understanding of what the Mondragon cooperatives are in the world and to relate it to issues in the United States. I have a daughter who had started a, a worker cooperative, Samara Collective, not too long ago, and I knew their story in terms of what the challenges were for them. Plus, serving on the board of the ICA group and of the Local Enterprise Assistance Fund so ICA Group does development of worker cooperatives. LEAF does financing for them. And I also have served on the Food Co-op Initiative Board. So I had a good sense of the challenges around starting cooperatives and felt like there was a need for pulling together good people who know about how to do co-op development and to put this together in, in a, a, an edited book. And working with Michael, it kind of grew from that more humble start to include contributions from colleagues internationally, including some colleagues from Korea, David O'Connell from Germany, Julian Manley from the Preston Cooperative Group, and then Mondragon itself, because Michael had worked for 19 years with the cooperatives as their business agent in the U.S., and so the project just kind of grew to what I had originally thought would be about 200 pages to 400 pages in length and 36 contributors. So how so did you learn about, Chris, how did you learn about co-ops? Where did, where did co-ops come into your world? So co-ops came into my world while I was in college, which is not usual in terms of people's experience. I went to a place called Friends World College, which was one of those 1960s, early 70s era alternative schools. Friends World was started with support from the New York Yearly Meeting of Friends and with the idea after World War II to get young people out into the world to give them opportunities to understand cultural differences around the world to essentially build cultural intelligence for people. And my experience took me first to the American South, where I had experience with the co-op development in places like the Tennessee Valley Authority, um, the work that Highlander Center was doing, and then to uh, India, where I had a chance to see agricultural cooperatives and craft cooperatives, and then on to Central America, where cooperatives had been an important part of the focus for the Agency for International Development in the work that they were doing in communities there. 
So when I came back to the States, it was clearly... Excuse me a second. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry. You got this in college? I got that in college. You got to know about co-ops in college? Yes. Do you think... We've been doing this show almost 10 years now. I think you're the first person been on the show that got this in college. Wow. Okay. All right. Yeah. Fascinating. And it took you to the Tennessee Valley, the Highlander School, which a lot mm-hmm. of civil rights leaders went to. Yes. In fact, Miles Horton was still there, and he told me the story about the day that they were wrapping up a training that Dr. Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks were attending, and he asked them, what will you do when you go home? To which Rosa replied, I just work as a secretary in an office, and I don't really anticipate that I will do anything different. <laughs> And the next week, she didn't give up her seat on the bus. Just a week later. That's what I recall him saying, yeah. yeah. I'm not going to do much. Okay, I'm just a secretary. <laughs> I don't have much to do. Okay. Right. So okay. those are good object lessons about don't ever sell yourself short. Yeah. And then Tennessee Valley Authority, India, and we're in Central America, you said. So I was in Costa Rica first, where I was getting my language skills, and then I was in Guatemala, and there I did research on the overthrow of a dictatorship through nonviolence by the part of uh, students and teachers, and it did oral history data collection, interviewing people who actually participated in the movement. You had a fascinating world before you got out of college. <laughs> it was pretty damn good. <laughs> And Terry, how did you get into this whole co-op world? Well, unlike Chris, and I went to a Quaker school, right? Oh. Swarthmore. Nothing, nothing about co-ops in college, but I was fortunate enough to have been born into a cooperative. The summer community I grew up in owned its land cooperatively, We did not understand ourselves as a cooperative, but we certainly understood ourselves as a community. And one of the really interesting things about this community is that it was founded by people of my grandparents' generation who were all various shades of pink to red. So I was a red diaper baby, and the political zeitgeist of this community was very, very leftist, very change the world. And everything about me and my life and my understanding of social engagement and community comes out of this community of origin, including my developing understanding of cooperatives to explain what this community was as I got older. Wow. Okay. So you were born into it and Chris came into it in college. And this, the whole religious part of the Quakers, friends, is about how do you support each other? How do you work together? Okay, it, that's interesting, too. Yeah, it is. It's, um, it, it's, I learned a lot at Swarthmore about Quakerism and the Society of Friends, and I married someone who was part of that and um, whose father had been a conscientious objector in World War II as a member of the society, which is a pretty damn hard thing to do, you will excuse my language. Yeah, it absolutely is. My husband was also had his conscientious objector status, and we met at Friends World College, so the Quakers still have a very strong role in working with, with young people who are trying to make sense of how they see themselves in relation to conflict and war. So this is a name out of that helped me a lot to understand uh, uh, is a Quaker in the Friends Society. It was Adrian Bishop. I don't know if you knew him, Terry. Here, he was in the housing co-op world, and he I, taught me. I a lot. recognize the name, but I don't think I ever met him, Vernon. Yeah, he uh, he taught me a lot about the co-op world. Matter of fact, I started managing housing co-ops, and he helped me so much to know both about managing and about co-ops. So he was quite helpful. Um, well, my my understanding developed when I was splitting with my husband, and I was attending law school, and I moved to Ann Arbor and found housing in a housing cooperative, one of the HUD-financed co-ops. And that's where I began to really understand 
the notion of cooperative as a form of ownership and became part of the National Association of Housing Cooperatives and its um, its president for, what, eight years, I think. And that's where you and I met. Yes. Yes. And I think I was, I can't remember, three years or six years I was president of an association. So, yeah, great. I was thinking you were going to say at Ann Arbor you were in a student housing co-op. No, no, I was, I had a child. Okay. I was not about to live in a student housing cooperative, but I will tell you that when I graduated from law school, my first clients were the ICC, the Intercooperative Council of Student Housing Cooperatives, and NASCO, the um, North American Students of Cooperation that fosters student housing cooperatives around the country and in Canada. Yes. Yeah. I'm familiar with them. Would love to get them on historically black colleges and universities. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes, definitely. Back to the book, Humanity at Work and Life. So, Chris, I understand Michael Peck called you one day or emailed you a one sentence and said, would you like to write a book? And <laughs> right. Three so, years later or so? Three years later, we've got this wonderful book, Humanity at Work and Life, and it's published by um, Oak Tree Press out of Cork, Ireland, which I had a relationship with them on a previous book project. And it's available from successstore.com as an ebook. And as of by May, the end of April, we will have it available as a, a printed paperback edition as well. And we had to do that because um, due to Brexit, one of our obvious markets for the book was Great Britain. And because of Brexit, it was not going to be possible to sell the book in uh, the UK unless we could come up with a print edition and a bookstore to do the distribution out of the UK. So we've, we've got it all figured out since we had contributors to the book. Also, um, Julian Man Manley at the Preston Cooperatives, and he uh, was concerned how we make this work for, for everybody in the English-speaking world. And we're looking forward to getting translations so that it'll be available in other languages as well. So you said successstore.com. Somebody can go to successstore.com and buy the book now yes. in the PDF format. They can, And they can also do advance orders for the paperback as well. Okay. And they can buy it as an ebook too, mm -hmm. Verna, which means that if you have a Kindle or if you read Kindle on your screen or what ebooks on your screen, you can buy it in that form and move it around among your devices if you like okay so we're getting ready to take our first break before we do that though christina can you tell us what you're going to do with the proceeds from this book yeah so we had this discussion as we were getting close to publication that what we really wanted to do is to use the profits to go back into mission related purposes so the contributors have uh, agreed that on a one-by-one one basis, we will direct the profits back into worker co-op development. And that will happen wherever our contributors are. Okay. So 36 contributors, six countries, three continents, and we'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. This is Vernon Oaks, Program is Everything Cooperative. We have Chris Clamp and Terry Lewis on today with us talking about a book called Humanity at Work, Humanity at Work, and Humanity at Life. Humanity at Work and Life. So we had talked a little bit about how the book started in the first segment, and the proceeds are going to help support worker co-ops. Um, these 36 contributors will say where they would their money to go to what 
where they want to send. Terry, where would you want your money to go to? You're one of the contributors. I am, and what I wrote my piece about um, is the Center for Community-Based Enterprise. I'm at CFO at the moment, um, and um, it is an economic development, community economic development organization in the city of Detroit, definitely wedded to the city, its culture, and its people, um, and more globally to the the state of Michigan and similar communities but that's where it's a 501c3 that's where my my portion of the proceeds will go for sure so each of the 36 contributors will say where they would want their proceeds to go to and it's to help create worker co-ops is that correct yeah worker co-ops and mission aligned social economy type activities so mission aligned Okay, so who did you dedicate the book to? So the book is dedicated to Chuck Snyder, who um, was responsible for introducing Michael Peck and me to each other. Chuck was the head of NCB for Terry how many years? 99. Um, A whole lot, (laughs) more than 20, maybe close to, getting close to 25, 30. Um, I was on the NCB board at the beginning of my tenure, Chuck was became president. We selected him, and he always used to joke with me that I was, you know, that I was responsible for his becoming president of NCB. That really is not true. Um, but, but thank you, uh, Terry. <laughs> yeah, he thanked me all the time, <laughs> and then I thanked him for hiring me many years later. <laughs> yeah, Chuck, Chuck. I got to know Chuck because we were on the NCB board together, National Corporate Business Association board. Excuse me, and. Um, so we had three terms on that board together, and Chuck became chair of the board, and I was on the nominations committee. And it turns out it was a year when I was actually up for re-election, and so Chuck called me and said, this is an embarrassment, but apparently I can reappoint you. Um, and it really struck me because Chuck's transparency and, and integrity really came through in that conversation for me. Um, and later he had me do some work around the Food Co-op uh, 500 initiative. And um, then later there was discussions about how there might be connections between Mondragon University and and U.S. universities. We worked together on that as well. Isn't it amazing how he had his fingers in so many different things as it relates to the co-op world? Um, <clears throat> so I went to Chuck. I met Chuck Terry through NC. Uh, National, National Association of Housing Co-op when I was the president and went to him for funding and uh, ideas about the housing co-op and how to make them better and how you get through this uh, principle six of getting uh, co-ops to uh, work with other co-ops. So um, we got to be close during that time. And so I was on my cousin Pat Thornton's radio show called the Thornton Business Hour in June 10 years ago. This June would be 10 years ago. Talking, and she had me on talking about housing co-ops. And the lady came out and said, put her finger in my face, basically, and said, you should have your own show. That was the idea. So I went to Chuck and said, I think this is going to be about $3,000. Can you fund this? We're only going to do it for the month of October. Okay, this October will be 10 years. And so it just took off. Everybody liked it. I loved doing it. I would have never thought I would be a radio host. Um, But Chuck, he just sort of became the cheerleader, the provider, the helper, any ideas. So he's just a fascinating guy. So I'm glad you are um, dedicating the book to him. Uh, He's a wonderful human being. And he's very much missed Without question. Absolutely. One of Chuck's best characteristics was his ability to um, to work with and foster people who were different from him in their basic um, strategies in interacting with the world. He is not one of those, he was not one of those people who were only attracted to people who were like himself. He really reached out and recognized the way in which he could work with people who had different sets of skills as long as they shared ideology and goals. Hmm. And he did it brilliantly. Yeah, he. I, I had 
conflicts with several people, and he would just say, oh, I think they're coming at this this way. Have you ever looked at how they're coming? this?" Way? And if somebody is in this world and they're really pushing, then maybe that's the only way to know how to do something. And that was just always amazing to me because I wanted to argue or fuss or fight or <laughs> stop talking to them or something. And he's looking for how, how we could work together, even with the differences. So, yeah, I found that fascinating. He helped the... I don't think I'm as, I don't know if I'd ever be as good as he was, but he helped me to look at things differently. Mm -hmm. And I would hear people say he would come into a meeting and he has his point of view and we're going to do this. And he would just listen to everybody and he could change his mind because of the information he he got. Brilliant at that. And he tried within NCB to foster the ability of everybody who was on his staff to do exactly the same thing, to listen and understand and change their mind. So let's go back to this book. We 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 could talk about Chuck for the rest of the hour. Yep. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Much loved and appreciated human being. Uh, uplifting e- equity and governance structure is one of the themes of the book. Um, domestic and global roots and rationale. So how do you do that? Uplift equity and governance structures on behalf of the growing universal social economy community. How do you do that, Chris? Oh, wow. Um, So part of what Mondragon has represented to those of us familiar with it is that their roots go back to 1956. There were three founders. Uh, Actually, there were five at the start, but three who stayed with it over the years. Um, Jose Maria Ormaichea, um, uh, Jesus Laranyaga, and Alfonso Goronyogoitia. And I had the good pleasure of being there at a time when those three men were still very active in the co-ops, and they were very generous with their time to sit and talk with me. Um, Ormaichea invited me to um, uh, put myself in the library at, at the bank where I was able to meet with people on their coffee breaks, go to lunch with different ones of the staff. And he made information and people available to me, both for the collection of data for my dissertation, as well as um, when I would return back to open the door and, and make sure that I got updated on what was going on with the Vondergon cooperatives. Um, Jesus Laranaga was the head of what was then the largest of the manufacturing co-ops in the Ularco group, as it was called then, and later came to be known as Fagor. And he was he was um, very thoughtful about the ways in which the sacrifices that they had made in a post-Civil War economy would be difficult to achieve with a later generation that it had not gone through the the period of austerity that the founders went through. And Alfonso Godonyogoitia, I, I, I tend to think of him as as the priest of the three because he was he loved to sit and talk with you, kind of the way my father in law would capture you in a conversation and people would joke, Oh, you're going to talk with Alfonso. Well, um you know, you're not going to get out of there for probably three to five hours. And it was true. Um, he was he was so much the the everyday common man of the of the three over the years and um, just very, very approachable and very knowledgeable about the importance of creating governance structures that were transparent and open. Whereas uh Ormaichea became the head of the bank and he got referred to as the tiger by young people in the community mm-hmm. because he was the man you had to go to with your handout for money. Um, and so the, each of them was very much their own person, and, and yet they successfully worked together with the um, uh, priest, Arisna um, who was really the, the thought person behind them and also the person because of his status as a Catholic priest who could navigate the the challenges that they experienced with the um, Franco government uh, which really despised the Basques 
And I came to appreciate this because I was living in the home of Iñaki Aguirre, whose father had been the first Basque president. So I really came away with a, an incredible experience across the three months that I was first there to collect data because I was exposed to prominent people who'd been involved with, with the building of, of the Basques into an autonomous region and also within the cooperatives themselves and the ways in which there were qualities that were embedded into the cooperatives that at the time they couldn't embed into the social political environment because they were living under a dictatorship. Um, we, have to, we have to get ready to take our, our break now. And okay. um, it's amazing that you were able to meet with them at a, such an early age and do your dissertation. But when we come back, I want to talk about Mondragon's influence on the UK, Germany, and South mm -hmm. Korea. And Terry will get into talking about Detroit and Michigan. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. News Talk 1450 WOLAM. Come back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. This program has been sponsored by the National Cooperative Bank for the almost 10 years that we've been on. We've talked about that already. National Co-op Bank, they have just been phenomenal in both providing financial support and being our cheerleader and giving us information and support on who could be on the show and different things that are happening in the co-op world. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities like Detroit and Southeast Washington, D.C. and Chicago, Southside. And they do this by providing innovative financial and related services. And to be a bank, you have to be innovative to provide financial services to low-income communities. And they have doing, they've done that quite well. So what we didn't talk about and I'd like to go to is Mondragon's influence on other parts of the world, the U.K., Germany, and South Korea. Let's take South Korea first. Chris, can you tell us about Mondragon's influence on South Korea? Yeah, so um, it started with the fact that, you know, I the, there is a strong presence of Catholics in, in Korea in South Korea, the Republic of Korea, and the presence of of the cooperatives with the influence of uh, Don Jose Maria Rajasbendi Arieta, which is a mouthful to say for us Americans, he as a priest was, um, be, was recognized by other activist priests in the world, um, certainly uh, became an important influence for Korea because there was a priest there who um, translated some of Arismendi Arieta's writings to share with people in Korea. And so the chapter that was contributed by um, two of our colleagues, uh, Sun Yun Lee and Garam Lee, talks about how the work of the priest, the Korean priest, contributed to um, a, an increasingly prominent awareness of cooperatives as a way to do um, new development and a part of the focus is on a cooperative called Happy Bridge. Happy Bridge as I understand it is a company that does franchising and so the parent company Happy Bridge is a worker cooperative now and some of the franchises are also worker cooperatives, some are just as you would have with McDonald's, um, a small business owner who has bought the franchise option. And so it's a fascinating story because my own backstory of research has been to look at shared services cooperatives. So I was really surprised to see that Happy Bridge went with a worker co-op model rather than a shared services model of the different franchise operators. But the... <laughs> Their story is a really good one for how uh, Mondragon has been influential in the world. It, Team Academy, which Mondragon University is part of, is connected to um, Seoul with um, a business incubator site 
and they have students in Team Academy going to different co-op experiences around the world, including Korea. Um, so Korea has been a really important um, site for the uh, relationship with Mondragon, and every mayor of Seoul in recent years has gone and visited Mondragon as a part of being the mayor of that city. Fantastic. So the the um, initial plan was to focus on Mondragon's influence on the U.S., but you've also looked at other parts of the world. So, Terry, can you give us some case examples of any one that you may want to talk about, whether it's New York or Cincinnati or manufacturing? Well, I'm going to go into deep detail about what's going on in Detroit and the Center for Community-Based Enterprise, but there's also interesting case examples that I'm dying to read because I have not read the book like Chris. Um, this is my first opportunity to have it in my hands and read it. Um, but in New York, in a situation similar to what C2BE, the Center for Community-Based Enterprise, is doing in Detroit, they're addressing structural, racial, and economic inequality in Brooklyn. And uh, Roger Green has written a uh, a contribution, a chapter, and in Co-op Cincy and the Union Co-op movement that comes out of the um, the Ohio Center for Community for Cooperative Ownership and all of the organization that goes on there um, that has a very interesting origin story, and we have that as well by Kirsten Baker, Barker, and Ellen Vera, and then there's uh, Manufacturing Renaissance both a business and a development idea in Chicago by Dan Swinney. My chapter discusses the challenges of replicating Mondragon in the blackest, hippest, and one of the poorest cities in the United States, the city of Detroit. Okay, so I was surprised that 89% of the population of Detroit is black. Um, because I lived there nine months in 1966. I was 18, and I worked at Ford Dearborn to try to make money to go to college. Well, as a matter of fact, I thought I might have stayed at Dearborn. The money was good. I just realized I wouldn't do that work the rest of my life. So <laughs> second paycheck I paid to go back to Bluefield State College in Bluefield, West Virginia, where I grew up. Um, but when all of those jobs went away, Detroit became extremely poor, blighted. Well, it, it's it, if you want to read about what happened in Detroit back in those days, Vernon, I commend to you the origins of the urban crisis, race and inequality in post-war Detroit by Thomas Segru. It is a really fundamentally sound picture of what happened in most cities as a result of structural racism and the devastation of the city as a result. And it really covers almost everything about what happened in Detroit since your day, right? Mm -hmm. um, in 1950, the city of Detroit was the fifth largest city in the United States. Okay. It had the highest rate of home in the country, 80%. Wow. And it was a redlined, racially segregated city that had a workforce largely employed by auto factories. Mm -hmm. But it had one of the best public education systems in the country and it was a great place to live which you undoubtedly saw oh some of the guys because i was 18 some of those guys on the line they all told me go to college every last yep. one of them uh several of them took me by their home which you would die for coming out of bluefield and seeing these homes they were just awesome and then go back 10 years ago or 15 years ago and these houses are boarded up or torn down. Exactly. Because in 1950, what began, uh, what built on what Segru talks about in the origins of the ur urban crisis, there was something that he missed and that was the HUD-financed 
single-family housing mortgage market with very low down payments that was across the country. And in Detroit, what happened was that the people who bought those houses were unable to keep up the payments. And so they walked out on their mortgages. And neither HUD made the lenders whole. That was the whole notion of a, of a, a, Guarantee. a insured mortgage. But the, and the city of Detroit, which didn't get its property taxes paid, foreclosed on, could have foreclosed on the homes. But neither, neither of those things happened. HUD did not take the housing, nor did the city of Detroit take the housing. So they stood vacant. If either had taken them and sold them to new people, the, the, Vacant housing would not have existed, right? Yeah. But now the city of Detroit has one-third of its 1950 population. One-third. Less than 700,000 people. And the population is still declining. And of its 139 square miles, because it's a very big city, right? Somewhere between... Um, 19 and 29 percent is absolutely vacant with torn down stuff. And then if you add all the boarded up housing, you have real devastation that has been visited upon the city. So how does now, the co-op world help to solve these problems? Because all those jobs went away. They went over out, out of the country even. Well, a lot of them went out of the country. And when the automobile factories decided to vertically integrate their supply chain and they shedded a number of their suppliers, our founder, Deb Groban Olson, who was the founder of the Center for Community-Based Enterprise, which I'm going to refer to as C2BE, said, you know, we have an opportunity here. She was an ESOP lawyer. She understood worker ownership. She said, hello, we can form an organization that will leverage this situation and save these businesses by worker ownership, by worker buyouts. Right? Now, C2BE was not able to scale up in time to do that, but the organization was founded, and the notion of worker ownership being central to it was has remained since that time. Um, the city of Detroit went through the largest public bankruptcy that has ever been declared in the United States, and it came out of it much better than it went in. We resolved a lot of our financial issues. Um, we are much more viable and thriving in terms of the uh, sustainability of the city as a whole, financially. And all of that is to the good, but we have, and we also have a land bank that unlike the situation when the HUD foreclosures and the property tax foreclosures took place and nobody took possession, we have a land bank that takes possession of vacant and boarded up properties and resells them. And that is a very good thing, except that the notion of who they resell to has been dominated by bringing people into Detroit instead of making it really easy to resell to the people who are already there and occupying the properties. That's changing a little bit. The land bank is becoming better able to sell to a, a renting owner. But the whole notion of buy really cheaply, hold and flip sometime in the future with a lot of outside investors holding property, this is not the best way for Detroit to move forward. And in Detroit, you have to think about whether the regentrifying of neighborhoods is pushing people out and causing great displacement because the housing prices go up, the rents go up, and the people who are living there and who make up the communities of the city of Detroit, right? are being displaced to other areas within the city and um, that are 
not receiving much in the way of growth or regentrification. That's not good enough for C2BE. We care about displacement. So, how can somebody get a hold of C Center for Community Based Enterprise? Um, www.c2be.org. C2be.org. Yep. Okay. Does C2BE uh, manage this land bank or does somebody else? No, we work, um, some of our, our, what we call project partners, that is the enterprises that we build and sustain, um, are working with the land bank and um, getting better and better at uh, at being able to, to use it. So we... We have great conversations about what's been going on around the world and in Detroit and the U.S. When we come back, I want to talk more about the future. What do you see happening in the future? We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. Information is power. That's what makes W.O.L. such a great partner have been but a uh, gentleman named Papa Sin was on the program at first October and Papa Sin is not information that's power information is the access to power you don't get the power until you put some action to it you take that information put action to it so got it now what actions are we taking for the future what do you see Chris getting new generations into co-ops well, thanks for quoting Papa Sen. I got to meet him in Ghana, and what a wonderful man. And I believe he was our first Cooperative Hall of Fame inductee from outside of the U.S. That's exactly right. What a great guy he is. And he just was so inspiring with the work he was doing and was able to show me when I was there. Oh, gosh, uh, it was a while ago. Let's put it that way. <laughs> But to answer your question, I have, I have lived this struggle as someone who has been teaching. This is my 42nd year teaching at Southern New Hampshire University. And in my first 27 years, we had a program in community economic development. And within that, I had a certificate program um, in cooperatives. I was actually hired as a co-op specialist when I was first hired at the university. And there, there are ways that you can do this. My experience has been to embed, just as you would embed discussions of race into curriculum, I embed discussions about alternative ownership and cooperatives wherever I see the opportunity. So I, when I teach a research course, I involve students in doing research on some aspect of cooperatives. Um, and. Often it's been with the local enterprise assistance fund here in Boston. Um, things like uh, last year, research on community land trusts. Uh, this year, I had them students looking at uh, biodiesel and electric cars and what types of activities could be connected to the co-op community. Um, so the students come out with having some vocabulary that they wouldn't have. Uh, who are the key financial institutions in the co-op world. What are the challenges for uh, BIPOC entrepreneurs to be able to engage with anchor institutions in their community? So it doesn't have to be a co-op course, but it has to be co-op content somewhere in what you're teaching. Um, And that seems to work fairly well for me um, as a strategy when, when I think about my own institution. Uh, I did research on this, and, and the thing that I was reminded, and I shared this recently with Terry, is I teach a chapter in an introduction to sociology where I ask students about what would make good jobs, worthy work for them, and how limited their vision is based on what they see in the world around them, and the ways in which it really is a challenge because business schools pretty much purge themselves a discussion of cooperatives out of the the Red Scare under the McCarthy era in the 1950s. 
Um, there was so much happening around co-ops before World War II, and that vitality really abated as we came out of World War II, and I really do think the Red Scare had a lot to do with it. And I was reminded of this when I hosted the Eastern Conference for Workplace Democracy a number of years ago, and I was interviewed by Hippo Press in Manchester, New Hampshire, and the gentleman said, well, aren't cooperatives communist? And I reminded him that the first cooperative that we know of in the United States was one that was a fire, fire insurance program in Philadelphia, started by none other than Benjamin Franklin. So it's important that we break that old myth about the connection between co-ops and communism, because it, it just is not true. It's another example of fake news that just doesn't go away. And you know, Vernon, from your experience in housing cooperatives, that people think either housing cooperatives are for the very rich, like Watergate and, and all the really, really expensive places like the Dakota in Manhattan, and even in Washington, D.C., quite monumental and very lovely properties. And other people think it's only for low-income people, and there's nothing in the middle as far as other people's ideas are concerned about housing cooperatives. Well, it's the same thing with respect to worker ownership and the notion of collaborating on a cooperative basis in order to create not just a job that pays a working wage, but a good job and one that has an equity stake in the company and a voice in its management and the ability to share in its profits. And that's what worker ownership does. That's what we do at C2BE in Detroit. And it makes things way better than the notion of just getting a job. You all know Dane Pauline Green, who was the president of ICA, International Cooperative Alliance. She said on the show that co-ops help people to come out of poverty with dignity. And that with dignity is what I really like, um, because too often people in poverty and I have family members that don't have the self-respect, don't have the dignity. They don't have voice. And so when you just said, Terry, co-ops help people to have voice. Not only voice, but you have a living wage coupled with the ability to increase your wealth when and if there's profits or surplus, whatever you want to label it, you get the chance to say what happens. Savings. Yes. <laughs> that's savings. Yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah. So um, the other thing with, with looking towards the future is just how, you know, the labor mu- movement is really a, both a resource and an opportunity because they are looking for ways to uh, reconnect with workers. And worker cooperatives are a place that, even though they're owned by the workers, they also need an infrastructure for ensuring that the voice of workers is is meaningful and effective in the organization. Mondragon does this with the social councils and having the worker members vote for the representatives um, on their boards. But labor has has a, a, a clear opportunity and a role here for us as well. Um, and I that's, that's been especially useful in New York State, where the labor unions have a profound relationship to the legislature yes. and worker ownership and Um, union co-ops in New York have been extraordinarily successful leveraging that relationship that the unions have with the legislature. In other places it's not so profound but there are other ways for unions to begin to work with cooperatives especially in issues of outsourcing. Yeah. Yeah. The ICA group has been doing work with SEIU out in Washington State around caregivers um, with a model that um, has the potential to create union co-ops there as well. And not not just union co-ops, but unions. Okay, unions sell their memberships, right? That is their source of income. And in places where there are right-to-work laws 
and no mandatory membership or payment of partial dues, which Michigan just reversed. Yay! Yay! Um, it is very hard. That, that income structure has been diminished and diminished and diminished, especially as fewer and fewer people are members of unions. But there are ways that the unions can leverage their position with respect to their understanding of work and their representation of people by representing worker owners who become cooperatives of outsourced people and negotiating directly with the, the cities and enterprises that employ them and cutting out the middleman that has been taking a great deal of the income stream from outsourced work. Yes. Yeah. So there's a book called um, Good Job Strategy, and I've been reading that book, and she talks about what is a good job in those companies that are doing good jobs, but she's looking at capitalistic companies. Yes. And I reached out to her to say, have you done any research on cooperatives? Because by definition, Cooperatives provide good jobs, and they well do this worker co-ops. Worker co-ops. That's what I'm talking. Worker co-ops. You're right. Worker co-ops provide good jobs as she defines them. Um, so it's going to be interesting if we can get her to do some research on on co-ops mm -hmm. to to uh, to show how they provide good jobs. And I didn't see why we needed unions for worker co-ops. And I went to a couple annual meetings at Cincinnati uh, Co-op until I finally got that. You still might need voice for the workers, right. uh, particularly if you get strong management in there. So you yes. still may need that bridge, that, that triangle of workers, union, or you call them social committees and not yeah, Mondragon? But, yeah, so the they went to a structure like that because in the 1960s they started to have some labor organizing and realized that they needed to create an infrastructure that allowed for for workers' voice on shop floor decisions as well as the, the larger governance of the organization. So we have less than a minute now, so go to successstore.com. Yes. Say it again. Where do you go to success, buy the book? Yeah, successstore.com, Humanity at Work and Life. That's the book. And we invite all of you to read it, and there will be a, a learning circle site forthcoming where people will be able to add their we, their uh, thanks and appreciation and ideas about other directions to go with this work. And we'll see everybody next Thursday. Please live cooperatively.